The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod, the daily podcast brought to you by the team behind Squawk Box. NYC, this is CNBC Control 2. CNBC's essential morning show. He's here too. Every day, get the best stories, debate, and analysis from the biggest names in business and politics. All right, we're coming to it next. Today, a behind-the-sounds special at the Delivering Alpha Summit. We should appreciate the, the, the calm that we have right oh, now. You know yes. how it gets back here? It's a lot of people. It is. A lot of it. It's like the Super Bowl. Tech investor Glenn Kacher says going public is going bust. The IPOs are happening in the private market. Investing for impact with a guy who runs an office as rich as a Rockefeller because it is the Rockefellers, Raj Shah. It used to be the case that 90% of American children could do better than their parents. Today, it's less than 50%. And former White House insider Steve Bannon takes on China. This is an economic war that Beijing has run against the West for 20 years. Today, Delivering Alpha. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. It's Thursday, September 19th, 2019. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back you by in three, two, one. Cue please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the ninth annual Delivering Alpha Investor Summit in New York City. We are at the Pierre. It's beautiful. Things are happening. We're ready to go. Like on Fifth Avenue, I think, aren't we? Fifth in Madison. The heart of Manhattan. That's right. I'm Becky Quick, Joe Kernan, Andrew Ross Sorkin. The Delivering Alpha Summit in New York is nine years running. In partnership with Institutional Investor, it's CNBC's biggest event, and Wall Street knows it. Investors like Carl Icahn, Bill Ackman, hedge fund leaders, and treasury secretaries and vice presidents are among the growing guest list. Today's podcast brings you behind the velvet ropes, literally, at New York's Pierre Hotel. Throughout this episode, you'll hear the steady buzz of guests arriving at the ballroom directly behind Squawk's set. That's where we deliver the alpha. By the way, alpha is kind of like the holy grail of investing. It's achieving returns way above expectation, above your benchmarks, and it's why everyone is here. Squawk Box production assistant Anjali is on set with our anchors every day, and this morning is no exception. This is Anjali Sundaram. I am here at Delivering Alpha, and I'm sitting in the control room. You'll hear from her throughout the pod. Some Alpha speakers join Squawk Box, and our first guest is Glenn Kacher. He's the founder of Light Street Capital, which has holdings in most of the big stocks that you keep hearing about. Disney, Netflix, Slack, Uber, Lyft, Pinterest, even Amazon. But as a technology investor, he's looking at every sector because tech has taken it all over. Here's his interview. Joining us right now to talk stocks, IPOs, and tech investing is Glenn Kacher. He is founder and CIO at Lightstreet Capital. And I guess, Glenn, let's just start from the perspective of how much money is sloshing around out there right now because of the Fed's policies. More uh, easy, easy monetary policy means more money is going to be there. And what does that mean for the, for the IPO market and, and for the private markets where you play? Sure. Well, I think we're at kind of a turning point for the IPO markets. Over the last several years, there's been so much capital, uh, both from private players and public players, going into these late-stage financings. So that by the time these companies want to go public, they don't really need any more capital. They've stayed private three, four, or four more years longer than typical. And there's a real movement going on in Silicon Valley, a groundswell of investors that are saying, 
We don't need to take further dilution in an IPO. But we've seen, you know, companies like Spotify, companies like Slack. Slack was, you know, break even on on uh, almost break even in the most recent quarter. And business is going very well. They don't need outside capital. They don't need further dilution. We should point out you you have had holdings in Uber, Lyft, Pinterest, and, and Slack. Those yes. have been ones that you've been involved in. Yeah, and Pinterest didn't doesn't need cap, didn't need capital either. What do you think about private valuations versus public valuations, and the idea that transparency in the public market has has demonstrated, at least to some, to the degree you think that the public market is a better uh, better way to value things, that there's actually something wrong in the private markets. And I think it's especially important because actually now there are public investors, meaning Blackstone, T. Rowe Price, Black, Black, Black Rock, T. Rowe Price, and some of the big public investors that are now in these private vehicles. Sure. I mean, more supply of capital and drives up prices. So we've seen valuations get done in private companies that we hadn't seen before ten, you know, five or ten years ago. So I think there's an adjustment. I, I think what's happening really is that the IPOs are happening in the private market. That's that's where IPOs are actually happening. They're just they're just a select group of investors that are doing them and then the public IPO is a separate event. And you know, I think the public markets, uh, public market investors are pretty good arbiters of, of value, and, and those values have to hold up over time, and that's going to come down to, them, to the fundamentals of the companies. And that's what markets, uh, you know, open outcry markets that, that we live in as public market investors do. So, you know, let the markets uh, do, their, do their function. Does it feel to you um, that there's any sort of a tipping point or any sort of a turn in, st- in terms of how willing the retail markets are to take some of these new deals? I mean, you, you've seen some recent listings that haven't done well. Yeah. You've also seen WeWork look like it may not ever come to market. We'll see. Yeah. Um, but does that feel like a turning point to you? I think those are two pretty separate things. Uh, you know, we've also had a general stock market that where there's been some questions about whether, uh, you know, what's happening with this value growth rotation. And that's obviously not good for high growth companies, which typically, you know, is what we see come out of Silicon Valley venture-backed companies. So we work, I think, look, there's a company that um, I think we've all. There's been plenty said about some of the behaviors, some of the uh, policies, and frankly, the business model there. I don't really consider WeWork to be a, a technology. Right, company. right. Uh, they were cobbling no, together company. some software technology to put a, a, a technology veneer on the business, but there's nothing there that um, you know really gives you the pulling efficiency that uh, that technology companies and the, that real sharing economy companies like Uber and Lyft. It's still requires capital take. expenditures, not like other, well, other tech companies. It's too. not just capital expenditures. When you and I take a Lyft or an Uber, that's a that's a that's a property or a, an asset that's been used 10, 20 times a day by different users. When you rent a, a, a cubicle at WeWork or three or four cubicles for your startup, no one else is using that those those square feet all day. So there's really no pooling efficiencies there. Uh, do you have concerns about Uber and Lyft given some of the regulatory um, advances that we've seen not only in California, but here in New York City, right. other places where it, 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 it may make it tougher for there to be uh, for, to, for those companies to turn a profit anytime soon. Hey, they, they've got to live by the rules that are, you know that our uh, legislators uh, bring to the table, and there there will be new ones, um, and we'll see how that works out. I, I mean, I think in, in with AB five, the the, right. the new in legislation in California. Um, 
if if that transition occurs for some percentage of drivers, it gives both Uber and Lyft the opportunity to to both require their drivers to do things they weren't able to require, meaning work certain hours, work certain locations, and also restrict them from working for the competition, which would reduce churn of drivers, which is a major cost to both of those companies. So I think there's two sides to some of, some of the, the opportunity to have cer- a certain percentage of your employees be, or a certain percentage of your drivers to be employees. And so we'll see how that works out. I think the core uh, attractiveness of both those stocks is the benign pricing environment in the U.S. This is a duopoly business. Sure, there's a few small competitors in various cities, but ride-sharing is, is largely a, a two-player uh business or market in the United States, and we've seen pricing go up dramatically. Lyft, which only does business in ride-sharing, they don't have a food delivery business, and they don't operate outside of the U.S. and, 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 um, and Canada, they, I think you're going to see their, their fundamentals do really well very quickly. And so we've got a big position in Lyft. Glenn, I want to thank you for your time today. It's good to see you. Yeah, I appreciate it. Up next on Squawk Pod, former White House strategist Steve Bannon. He says the Trump administration is battle-ready against China. In this economic war, the trade is just one part of it. We have a currency part. We have a technology part. We have a, we have a capital markets part. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. I've got our next guest in the green room behind me. Stand by Joe, his mic is here. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box here on CNBC. Uh, we are live from the, as you can tell maybe, I certainly can, uh, from the Delivering Alpha Investor Summit in New York City, uh, presented by CNBC and institutional investors. It's, uh, it's a really nice spread over there. Uh, I don't think yeah. these people are leaving anytime soon. Well, you're enjoying, right? You got yeah, some Mike croissant right here. There you go. I'm Joe Kerner on the carbs in the morning. And Andrew Ross Sorkin with the morning carbs. Uh, that's a croissant. We're at the Pierre. At the Pierre. <laughs> Exactly. Thank you, Quick. Andrew Ross Sorkin, we're all here. Steve Bannon is the former chief strategist for President Donald Trump. His title in the winning 2016 election campaign was CEO. Bannon is credited as the architect of Trump's view on China. The wording used is specific war. In today's conversation, Bannon describes the many battles of an economic war with China a manufacturing sector competing with American factories, a rising consumer class, and the explosive growth of Chinese technology. So the former White House insider lets us in on Trump's war plan and its political implications that began during the presidential election of 2016 and reverberate in the current Democratic contest for 2020. Here's Steve Bannon on Squawk Box. Let's welcome Steve Bannon, former White House uh, chief strategist. Uh, Steve's known as an architect of many of uh, President Trump's America First policies. Uh, you were there then. I, I know you still talk to the president. I'm, I'm, now. Just, I'm just his top student. Top, top, student. top student. He mentioned that. He mentioned that. But you, out. I'm, his be- I'm his best student. I'll well, either you have insight into how he's thinking or maybe you've actually influenced some of his uh, position. Okay. You at least have an idea of what he's thinking on, on certain things. And you have your own ideas. So I, I, th- I think I know what his default positions are. Okay. Look, I think a lot of this, what you're hearing uh, coming out of Beijing, 
is wishful thinking. I think what they're trying to do in a lot of ex- uh, to a large extent is trying to game the system. They're talking about a two-step deal, and if you really look down below it, they're talking about um, you know maybe we break off part. Of, maybe 80% of the stuff was covered in Lighthizer's deal, but we we shove everything else off to something else. You I mean th- the security stuff. And yeah, the yeah, yeah. And- this is this is this is this is they're trying to box in Donald Trump, and I think Trump has been the force of stability here. He's been on point in this thing. He said, look, the Lighthizer deal was 18 months in negotiation. It dealt with a major restructuring of the Chinese economy to integrate it into the world economy. It's got those seven verticals that they have to address. Uh, The tariffs are part of that. But remember, this is an economic war that Beijing has run against the West for 20 years. Donald Trump stood up to this. And I think if you really listen to President Trump and you listen to Lighthizer, they're talking about really we're staying on track on the major deal. We're not gonna we're not gonna be gained by some two step process but in of terms the CCP. Of, in terms of the timing, who's got I mean I, I know the president thinks President Trump thinks he has the leverage and he may actually in a, a, from a rational perspective, but you could also make the argument that the Chinese are willing to take the pain. Look, the Chinese, I think President Xi said to a council inside of Beijing, hey, we can eat grass for three years if we have to. We're very tough. We did the long march. But the reality is, and this is, I think, the major shift in the Overton window that President Trump has had, we're we're not the declining power. He was elected president of the United States because the elites in this country had treated us the Thucydides trap, the Henry Kissinger, Graham Allison, that we're the declining power, they're the rising power. We have all the cards. Remember, in this economic war, the trade is just one part of it. We have a currency part. We have a technology part. We have a, we have a capital markets part. So this, this war, economic war, has many aspects to it. Trump has been, I think, the rock of Gibraltar on this. He's been so, so stable in saying, hey, here's what we want. And remember... There's a big reformist element inside of China that worked with Lighthizer and Peter Navarro for 18 months. to get. They understand they have to restructure this economy in a major way. We, we had the former prime minister of Australia uh, ride on with us, Kevin ride on with yes, us sir. earlier this week. And he said um, that the hardliners are circling right now in China. He thinks they may be in, 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 in the U.S. too, but especially in China. And there's these two camps between what you, mean, what you mentioned, the, those who are willing to go ahead and make a compromise and the hardliners. He said, if we don't figure something out, probably by the end of the year, it's going to be a long time, long time coming. Because after the beginning of the year, both sides have things that they have to start worrying about in the immediate future, the election. I I, I do agree. I think this is why when they looked at the deal in May, I think a number of the hawks, I think led by Wan Shishan and others, looked at this and said, hey, this is a surrender to the West. They're basically between transparency, accountability, and enforceability, which is the, th- the tripod that this deal is based upon. We can't sign this. I happen. I think that this is a long-term process. We're going to be in this uh, this kind of armistice about this economic war, I think, for a long time. But uh, here's the thing. Not only has Trump changed the dialogue, I think he's opened up to the world that the United States, the American capital markets, American companies, the American market, is where you want to be. This is a, this is a safe haven. Yeah, this is the national anthem in the protests in Hong Kong. L- listen, that, What's gonna, I mean, that's, that, that, that wasn't happening when the, the deal broke down in April. If, if, people, if people think that millennials are just, uh, you know... Uh, no accounts. Look what's happening in Hong Kong. These are young kids on the street fighting a totalitarian regime for capitalism, right? And if you see how they're taking, you know, they're being gassed, they're being tear gassed, they're having rubber bullets shot at them. They actually testified on Capitol Hill this week. The mainstream media is focused on Corey Lewandowski and the circus of this uh, of this impeachment process. But at the same time, you had Joshua Wong and others, these young kids from Hong Kong on Capitol Hill 
talking about it. Beijing does not want to address. I think Hong Kong is the key that picks a lock. So far, President Trump, has, I think, has been appropriate. He's risen above that, so they can't blame him on being the black hand of the CIA in back of it and not seeing that this is really an uprising of the Hong Kong people for the rule of law. But if you want to see, look, the great story in the first half of the 20th century, I think, is going to be the freedom of the Chinese people. The Chinese people are the most hardworking in the world. Only they can bring their freedom. But we have a totalitarian regime that's about to celebrate their 70th anniversary. That's not an anniversary the United States should be celebrating, right? They, that, that regime has killed more people than any regime in history. But do you understand the president pushing off the additional tariff hikes to the 15th so as to uh, offer, I guess, some goodwill in the negotiations? So it's not on the anniversary of this. Yes, yeah. Becky, I think, look, he has gone out of his way. Yeah. to be accommodating and trying to do something that, he, look, he's trying to do something that actually works for the Chinese. That deal of Lighthizer's and Peter Navarro's was very systematically thought of to integrate them into the world economy and to really free the Chinese people who have essentially been slaves in the manufacturing process. I think it's, it's foresight, and I think just Trump's just been the rock. And I think all this happy talk, there's going to be a two-step deal, they're going to buy a few more soybeans. Trump, I think, has been very adamant that, hey, there's a deal on the table. We want to go back and start looking at that deal. And one thing I think the Chinese are going to do is what the Shanghai communique. One of the things, tricks I think they're going to pull is, that, is to try to get some deal that's so general, go back to the original deal, but right. get in language that's so general it can be interpreted by both sides. Yeah. I, don't think Trump, I don't think Trump takes the bait on that either. Remember, the CCP, they are experts in barbarian management, right? They know how to incentivize elites in tributary countries. Well, hold on, Andrew. They I, know I, I got, I got, I, I'm sorry. I just got to get to, uh, is Warren the, the prospective nominee at this point, or is it still Biden? In your I, 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 don't, I don't agree with Matt Drudge yet, but I think if you look Yesterday, at... Yesterday, he if, said if, if you look at, to lose. And, and Matt's got a tremendous sense of, of news, but if you look at, the, if you look at her uh, speech down here at Washington Square Park, which is quite dramatic, it's really trump light. I mean, now we're seeing, if that's the case, you're going to have populist nationalism versus populist socialism. She's taken many of the, her speech is really uh, trump light into the fact taking Peter Schweitzer, my partner in government accountability, and talking about the Stock Act and insider trading and things like that. So she's, uh, I think she's clearly defined where the energy is. I think Biden, because of China, and I think this is why Trump has shifted this discussion, and China is going to be the framing device for the 2020 election, the geopolitical concerns of the nation. That was my question though, do you believe that the Trump base looks at China the way you look at China? Which is to say, if you're a farmer, a soybean farmer, or anybody else in the middle of the country, I think there's a lot of people, I imagine, and maybe I'm wrong, I think you're going to probably disagree with this assessment, I would imagine that they, they can think about it theoretically, but beyond that, they're looking at their own, their own wallet and saying, I don't know. I think it's the exact opposite. I think okay. when he saw America in a decline, we went to the, this is how we pierced the blue, the blue wall. If you go to Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin, you don't have to come to New York. Or we, I have to actually walk people through why this, why, you know, uh, uh, Schwartzman now has religion on CNBC. He says, oh, yeah, they've had 20 years they've been doing this, right? So the Wall Street's starting to get religion like Trump. It, on the campaign, if you go up there, people know the factories and the jobs all went to China and the fentanyl and opioids came in into this despair of not having jobs. So you can speak in shorthand. In Michigan, in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Iowa, the upper Midwest, this is why Donald Trump's president. Remember, immigration was an issue, but when we would go to, to the upper Midwest, it wasn't so much built, we build the wall, it's where are the jobs? Bring the jobs back. This is one of your quotes. The 2020 campaign will go down as the most vitriolic and nastiest in American history. It's very simple. When you say we, you're talking about uh, Trump. If we win, we save the country. The, the margin of victory in some of the swing states 
in 2016 was was fairly narrow, was it not? Fairly narrow. We drew an inside straight. It's 79,000 votes. It's 79,000 votes in five counties. How does it okay? look? How's the hand being dealt right now in the swing states look for the president? It's going to be a grind. President Trump has got to get these swing states. It, look, Arizona's in play. North Carolina's in play. This is going to be a grind. He's got the entire mainstream media apparatus. When I said vitriolic as, as before the Civil War in 1860, look at the Kavanaugh thing. A, a op-ed in the New York Times that may have not been edited properly. You've got presidential candidates hitting the bid right away. We've got to impeach him. We've got to impeach him. A Supreme Court justice. This is Look at President Trump. Look at the Corey Lewandowski uh, fiasco the other day. You've got Joshua Wong and these young people from Hong Kong testifying. Mainstream media don't want to cover it because they're all about the impeachment hearings, right? This thing is going to get so nasty that I think a lot of people are just going to say this is too much. But, you know, President Trump's a closer. That's what we won in 16. He closed. Hillary Clinton didn't. We won, quite frankly, with very thin margins but in these states. But it's not in the bag. Oh, it's definitely not in the bag. This is going to be, this is going to be a very tough. President Trump knows that. He, that's why he's very focused on his efforts. He's, he understands that. Now, look, you could have a Reagan-type victory. If things go your way, but I think it's sticking to what the program is, sticking to its policies. Thank you uh, uh, for, for uh, on set this time. Yeah. Uh, it was it was great to have you on. Thank thanks, you. thanks for having me, guys. Thanks. Thank you. See you. Next on Squawk Pod, delivering impact. The head of the Rockefeller Foundation wants investors to think about doing good while doing well. This is about helping others uh, who are making trillions of dollars of investment decisions put some serious proportion of that towards social impact. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Guests started arriving uh, for the whole conference. It is definitely busy in here. This is Squawk Pod. Here's Becky Quick. We are live from the ninth annual Delivering Alpha Summit in New York. We're here to bring you interviews with influential names in politics and economics and the best investing ideas from some of the smartest asset managers on Wall Street. Joining us right now is Raj Shah. He is president of the Rockefeller Foundation. That's a philanthropy with an endowment of more than $4 billion. And, and Raj, thanks for being here. It's great to see you. Thank you for having me. Raj is a firm believer in impact investing, as you'll hear. It's a pretty simple idea. If you or any investor moves millions, billions, trillions of dollars, why not put at least some of that money behind causes you believe in, right? You'll make a profit, the world will get better, a classic do-well-by-doing-good scenario. But is it really as good for your portfolio and the world as it seems? 
Joe, Andrew, and Becky take up that debate with Raj Shah from the Rockefeller Foundation. It's interesting. The foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, I think is the only foundation that has an official arm that's dedicated to asset management. So it's, it's a little interesting. We were talking about it before you got here. How does it work and what's the relationship back with the foundation? Well, we created the Rockefeller Foundation Impact Investment Management Platform to help investors who wanted to be serious about having social impact with their investment. Uh, we, we see a country today, our own country, where it used to be the case that 90% of American children could do better than their parents. Today, it's less than 50%. It used to be the case that if you were born in poverty in this country, you had a 50% chance of ending up in the middle class 40 years ago. Now, it's less than 20%. So investors, business leaders, we saw the statement from the Business Roundtable, have a responsibility to help change that. And we meet all the time with family offices and investors who are serious about wanting to have a positive social impact. And we try to help them do that by finding high leverage, uh, smart investment opportunities that are really so lifting really people just up. It's not just managing, managing your own, money, right? Uh, your own funds. No, no. We have an endowment. We use our endowment to help promote these types of activities. But this is about helping others uh, who are making trillions of dollars of investment decisions put some serious proportion of that towards social impact. Our impact investment portfolio is really targeted at measurable impacts to lift people up. So we've invested in a platform called Six Up that helps thousands of low-income students in this country go to college and get financial services to do that. And we use, they use unique new technology algorithms to help make that group bankable. Uh, we've invested in cross-boundary. Meaning, meaning what? Like you wouldn't be looking at how much money you have in the bank for these things, but it, whether you pay certain bills on time. You look whether at you their other... test scores and their uh, potential for performance and the ability to support them while they're in school to improve performance. And we know that correlates with repayment after the fact and lowers their effective interest rate. Yeah. I'm... And uh, we've invested in cross-boundary that is providing energy and electricity access to nearly 200,000 people in rural Africa that don't otherwise have electricity. That is transforming their lives. And frankly, CrossBoundary is able to find partners that charge a price per kilowatt hour that allows for a reasonable return That's for investors. That's what I was going to say. How, how, what do you consider success? I mean, I, I would look at it and think you're, you've got two different things, two different goals you're trying to accomplish. How do you measure it? Well, success for us is that investors that work with us, uh, often their other foundations or family offices, are meeting their investment returns. And success for us is also that we can measurably demonstrate real impact against climate or human opportunity goals. And we think that there's more and more interest in this area of investing. And our big message to folks is if you're really serious about this, you have to go beyond ESG analyses or negative screens. If you're serious about positive impact, find a partner like the Rockefeller Foundation or someone else who you believe is credible and has a network around the world of entrepreneurs and businesses seeking capital, but also trying to lift up people who otherwise are vulnerable. I don't know if you remember, if, if you saw this a couple months ago, CalPERS, uh, there was a, a report in the Wall Street Journal about CalPERS who had brought a consultant in and showed them that actually uh, their investment strategy, which was an ESG oriented, they were one of the most progressive, aggressive in this space, that they actually had much lower returns as a function of it than they would have had they kept um, nicotine companies and, and cigarette companies and other things in that portfolio. I think you should, if you're going to do something good, you should just do it. Water.org. Go accept that 2% or a 1.5% return. Give microloans to people to build out 
water. Is that don't a, expect okay. to, you know, that's why you but try so, to maximize well, returns. Yeah, I, I don't know I'll why see. you have to, why not just say what you are and do what you are and do it philanthropically and do it at water.org. Well, well, we why do. try to feel uh, good about normal? Invest- we do. We've invested in science and technology that's okay. helped billions of people move off the brink of poverty, hunger, and health. Just, I, just next week, right. we'll be announcing a major data partnership to use advanced Can data people analytics and people accept 2% instead of trying to well, that's pretend I think you're maximizing? Well, that, that, is, that is exactly what we're suggesting. Yeah. That, you, even if you got your money back after giving micro yeah. loans. And, and yeah, China, exactly. they see that as but, their but form what, what do you make of the larger trend? Because there are pension funds across the country who are thinking a lot about ESG yeah. and other things like this. Look, and then they look at CalPERS, which really was the leader right. in this space. And then I think there, there's a little bit of second thought. Does it help the retirees? I don't think there's second thoughts at this point. I think. But you're not. A, you're more. You're more an impact investing, less in ESG. Right? That, that's correct. Right. We're more in impact. But I'll give you this about impact about ESG. There's almost $31 trillion under the label of ESG investing. That has grown by $10 trillion in the last two and a half years. So that trend is serious and is happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, only about 3 to $4 trillion of that is serious. The rest of it is, is not done well. And like any other industry at a nascent early stage, people like CalPERS and others will learn and will do better. But it is certainly the case that if you're a teacher in California, you probably don't want and need to have your capital in a right. nicotine business or in well, you a might not, rights you might, you, not, you, you might not want it and in a free and fair trade coffee company that gets worse returns because it doesn't take advantage of comparative advantage. And, you you know, you have you feel good on the front end. You get lousy returns. You have less for retirement. Well, that, that's, so, yeah, that's pretty judgmental about free and fair trade coffee. Some of those do well. Some of those don't like I'm any other I'm just saying that Andrew's point is, but Andrew made a good this. point, and that is if you have a lower return than you would get from not being ESG, then you're people that you're trying to help in terms of pensions aren't getting the return that they yeah. deserve. So that's I, I'd say feeling virtuous yeah. on the front end isn't worth it for the people that have lower I would. amounts. Of- Impact investing is not for everybody. There are billions and I think soon to be trillions of dollars of capital in the hands of people who want to have a social but impact. But it's, it's a philanthropic for those, move. For those I would do, just go full I would on. say partner. I'll take, right. just give us. me my money back, give the microloans to people that can't get water, don't have a toilet. That, you know, we've been doing this for a while. That's not the most scalable way to move hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. You need both, and you need an all-hands-on-deck effort. That's why we welcome the statement from the Business Roundtable. It's why we welcome the trends we see in China and elsewhere, and it's why we built a platform that's growing rapidly and mobilizing hundreds of millions of dollars towards partnerships and businesses that are actually double bottom. Gotta learn. Raj, thank you. I really appreciate having you here. Teach people to fish. That's a wrap. Today's Squawk Pod is the best of our show on site at the Pierre Hotel. But our anchors were delivering at the DA conference long after we finished broadcast. Joe interviewed Vice President Mike Pence. Andrew sat down with the chairman of the SEC. And Becky spoke with the CEO of Blackstone, one of the biggest private equity investors in the world. You can access it all at CNBC.com slash Delivering Alpha dash II. It's kind of like if you were going to test people, like if, the, if you could actually be a broadcaster, you, this would be like... <laughs> this is it? Well, this would be like the 20-mile like obstacle course. Uh, when the people get here, you right. can't even hear yourself think, right? But it's, a, it's good. It's a great conference, a lot of people. Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin host Squawk Box weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.